Ah, the patriarchy. The patriarchy that says men should be in charge and women should follow along and do what men want them to do. We know the patriarchy is unfair and we know that it's unjust and we know that it needs to be smashed. But why is it that we've got ourselves into this situation? Why is it that historically men seem to have ruled the world? Because if we're looking into ending gender inequality, we need to know where it started. Like, what's the deal here? But how far back in history do we have to go? What myths do we have to bust? What uncomfortable questions do we have to ask? A lot of us might just assume that the patriarchy is built on the premise that men are perhaps physically bigger and stronger than women, and hence women would naturally become subservient. But you may be surprised to discover where the invention of the patriarchy actually did come from. Hello, welcome to Patted, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. We are anything but predictable here on Patented. We like to be a little bit niche, and I've talked about everything from the invention of Coca-Cola to the invention of dogs. But today, I am joined by the award-winning British journalist and author, Angela Saini. She's brilliant. You may have read her stuff. Author of The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. To get to the bottom of who the hell invented the patriarchy and ask the question, is oppression a natural part of the human experience. I was nervous doing this episode, as you can imagine. Hi, Angela. Hi. Nice to have you. Whereabouts in New York are you? Or you're not in New York City. I think you're somewhere out. You're... No, I'm in New York City. I'm in Manhattan. Oh, you're in New York. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Oh, well, well welcome. Thank, Thank you very you. much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's, there is a theme hmm. in your body of work. But this one particularly sort of interested me because it kind of goes back to sort of origin stories. What was it for you about this particular thing that you thought, hey, actually, that's really interesting? Was it the kind of myths that surround the patriarchy? Well, it's such a big question and it's been around. Sorry. You know, it's such a huge, no, not your question, but the question of oh, how okay. the patriarchy <laughs> came about. Um, why is it that men rule the world? You know, how did they come to have so much power? It's such a fundamental question. And especially if we're looking to end gender inequality, then really I think it's an important one because how can we end it unless we know what its roots are? What surprised me was that there isn't much of a literature on this topic, even feminist literature. You know, feminist literature usually looks at the present, the circumstances of women now, which is incredibly important, of course. But we have so much good data and information from archaeology, even from genetics, from the different ways in which historians are now looking at the past that can help us paint that history. And so I've been desperate to write this book for years and I'm really glad that I got to. I'm re- well, I'm really glad you have. I'm really interested because I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, we talk about archaeology, how far back do we have to go and how many kind of myths do we have to bust? I mean, that whole idea that men are stronger, therefore they're going to be a bad... It's ridiculous. So I suppose uh, how much of it is biology and genetics how much of it is just cultural 
nonsense. Well, you say, you know, men are stronger and that's why, and that sounds ridiculous to you, but there are so many people that I speak to who just assume that that's the basis of all of this. Like Napoleon was not a weightlifter, (laughs) for example. Um, Like he was kind of short. Neither is Boris Johnson. (laughs) Well, he might just like sit on you. You could just do that (laughs) and then that might work. But no, exactly. This idea that kind of, Men are stronger. Is... Authority it doesn't work that way. Yeah, you're right. No, well, that's it. But you can under, you can kind of understand how myths like that happen, I guess. Yeah, it's like, you well, can. men are generally yeah. bigger, therefore. But that's not it, though. That's not the reason. No, and I didn't think that that was a myth I would have to debunk. And actually, it ended up being the one I had to do first. So I ended up writing chapter <laughs> one right at the end because I realised so many really? people I spoke to just assumed that there must be something biological that underpinned all of this. But when you actually look at it, you know, if it were biological, then you would see this pattern of male domination stretch back into the mists of time and also be universal if it was something Mm. rooted in our bodies. And you don't. In fact, the further back you go into history, the more social variation you see, so much negotiation and resistance in how people live and very egalitarian societies in many different parts of the world. And not just that, you know, you can look at other species if you want to compare us to our closest primate cousins like chimpanzees or bonobos. Chimpanzees are male-dominated, but generally even then when primatologists talk about male domination, they mean males dominating other males. They don't mean all males dominating females because females have their own dominance hierarchies. And bonobos... They're crazy bonobos. They're matriarchal. <laughs> well, you say crazy, I say beautiful. <laughs> they are beautiful. I didn't mean that. I just when I think of bonobos, I always think of you know. Yeah, they're pretty out there. Pretty out there. You're right. <laughs> but, but okay, so why have they? Why that? Like, what's happened there to bonobos that they've gone down sort of matriarchal road? Well, I think the more important question to ask is why have chimps gone down the male-dominated road, because there is no natural rule here. So for bonobos, female domination seems to be a product of the fact that females form very strong networks with each other, which males don't seem to form in the same way. So even though the males are slightly bigger, just like they are in our species, they can't move up the dominance hierarchy in the same way as the females. And the females can be violent towards the males, depending on the circumstances. I've seen that for myself. I remember when I was writing one of my previous books, I went to San Diego Zoo and I was observing bonobos in captivity with a world-leading bonobo researcher. And there was a male that had just been injured by an older female and he looked terrified. He was kind of crouching in the corner, scared, Mm. seemingly scared Mm -hmm. that it might happen again. So authority and power, even in other species, is not always a product of size or weight or strength. Often it's about alliances and networks. Even among chimpanzees, the alpha male is often the one that can form the best alliances with others. So with humans, I mean, I'm right in thinking there are still matriarchal societies on Earth now. It's not all... I mean, we're talking about a very particularly sort of European point of view, aren't we? Not matriarchal. I mean, it depends who you speak to. So anthropologists, Western anthropologists will say... There are no matriarchal societies, but there are many matrilineal ones. So matrilineal means that authority is passed and inheritance is passed from mother to daughter rather than from father to son. And we have evidence of at least, anthropologists at least have documented at least 160 existing matrilineal societies all over the world. 
none in Europe now, although there would have been before, but right across the Americas, and there are many indigenous societies that are matrilineal, an entire belt across Africa, and many dotted all over Asia. So this is far less rare than we might imagine. Are there kind of geographical reasons then? I mean, forget about the sort of history, but there's just the sort of geography. You mentioned, okay, big swathes of Africa, Southeast Asia. Like, why there? Are there kind of reasons why there? No, it's nothing to do with geography, because if you go back into history, you would have seen many more all over the world, and they really are scattered. If you look at the map... Okay. Oh, okay. So okay. the only illustration I have in my book is a map of these matrilineal societies, and they are genuinely randomly everywhere all over the world, and sometimes ensconced within very patriarchal societies. So in India, for instance, there are a number, and around them, society is very patriarchal, <laughs> and yet there are these kind of communities. In European societies, I suppose, you have this idea of women as property, women taking on the names of spouses, women's labor being owned by men, you know, dowries, all this kind of stuff. Is that what we mean when we talk about sort of patriarchy and where the origins of that comes from? I suppose I'm trying to just figure out what we mean by Patriarchy. patriarchy. Well, it yeah. depends because there are different... I mean, I struggle with the word patriarchy itself because it feels so flat and it assumes that it's the same everywhere in the world. And it really isn't, that every single patriarchal society is different. It is the product of that particular history of where you are. And these are all inventions, you know, just like democracy, just like the state. This is a system that was invented. It is refined. It is reasserted, rebuilt yeah, we don't think of it. It's, it's, well, this is why this book is needed, because there is this assumption that it was always been like that, or there are biological reasons. But there's, you're saying there's no biological reasons as such. Well, not you saying there isn't. Well... It is, as an invention, someone sat down and went, oh, you know, I'm just going to pause on the jet engine for a minute, and I'm going <laughs> to invent something, you know, or like a printing press. Well, so many of our social systems are invented, obviously, you know, Things that we take for granted that feel universal, things like democracy, the idea of the nation state, capitalism or communism. You know, we create, invent these ways of living. Sometimes they spread and become widespread because they serve a particular purpose or they suit the people in power. And patriarchy is one of those systems. And it wasn't as though it was invented like a thunderbolt and then it just spread. <laughs> it was worked on. You know, in the beginning, it didn't look the way that it looked later. Again, this is me being ignorant. When I imagine the invention of democracy, I'm, I get in my DeLorean and I whisk back to ancient Greece and there's like people with like togas on, and, you know, et cetera. Do we, where would I go in my DeLorean for patriarchy? Like who? Well, like communism, I kind of think of, you know, Marx, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, Marx and yeah. Lenin and, and Engels and... Where do, we, where do we have to go? Well, that, that was a big challenge. You know, where does this start? And I had to go further back than antiquity. I wish it was just ancient Greece. Although ancient Greece was, ancient Athens in particular, was perhaps the worst time in history to be a woman. It was particularly misogynistic. The literature is just kind of seething with this hatred and suspicion of women. And this is also where we get the idea of separate spheres, the oikos and the polis, that a woman's place is in the home and a man's place is in the public space, which until then obviously wouldn't have existed because people, you need a lot of money to be able to have that kind of very rigid division of labor. You have to be quite wealthy. Even in ancient Athens, most people wouldn't have lived that way, only the upper classes. But we have to go even further back than that. So 
you know, I went to the beginning. Um, one of the first places I visited when I was writing The Patriarchs was Chattelhuyuk, which is this settlement that is more than 9,000 years old. So this is thousands of years older than the pyramids in Egypt, thousands of years older than Stonehenge, pre-writing, Neolithic settlement in Anatolia, just on the border with Syria in modern-day Turkey. And you see in this place, thousands of people lived there. It's a very sophisticated settlement. And yet every single archaeological measure that we have tells us that men and women lived very similar lives. They ate the same food. They did the same kind of work. They spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. They were buried in similar ways. Women weren't invisible by any means because we have way more female figurines than we do male ones. So we cannot say that the Neolithic in that region was patriarchal because genuinely we do not have the evidence for that yet. It may come, but we just don't have it. Where we really start to see the turning point, so this invention point, is thousands of years later with the emergence of the first states. So you can imagine when these first big states and empires are being developed, those in power right at the top of society, the social elites, were especially concerned with population. This was the source of their power. How many people do we have? And this is in a time when people could quite easily leave. You know, it's not like it is now where you're born into a nation state and you become a citizen and you have to negotiate your leaving and entering. People could just leave and be hunter-gatherers if they wanted to or, you know, abandon it. So they needed people to be loyal and they needed people to have as many children as possible. So what you see over time in these early states in ancient Mesopotamia is a pressure starts to fall on young women to have as many children as possible and on young men to defend the state, to be available to die for the state if necessary. And that's kind of the first shoots, if you like, of the beginnings of gender depression. Like hunter-gatherers, for example, we imagine wearing kind of loincloths, carrying spears and being looking a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, throwing spears at things. I mean, what about, what about those sorts of societies 100,000 years ago, maybe? Well, again, I think we have a very skewed idea of what life was really like in the Neolithic. And I would perhaps use, and I do use this in my lecture sometimes, a picture of the Flintstones. You know, you have Fred, Fred and Wilma, that, Wilma looking yeah. after the kids in the cave and Fred, a completely different size from Wilma, kind of out dragging the carcass back. It was never like that. Of course, it was never like that. Everybody would have done everything. And we have lots of evidence of women hunting, even here in the Americas a few years ago. Evidence was found of a teenager buried 9,000 years ago with hunting implements, clearly a hunter, until it turned out from... DNA analysis that her bones were female and so some older archaeologists just couldn't understand it. How is this possible? <laughs> but actually when an analysis was done of all the hunter burials from around that period of time in this region, we have an equal number of male and female hunters. So really? we can't say that big game hunting in the Neolithic in the Americas was a gendered activity because genuinely right now, that's not to say that things might change, we don't have the evidence to say that it, that it was. So we really need to rewrite these narratives. We need to let go of that kind of Flintstones version of the past. Moving from the Neolithic period to, I mean, was that sort of the invention of agriculture when suddenly we stopped being hunter-gatherers and actually we actually stopped moving around, stayed in one place and grew things? Is that There are parallels here because, of course, the state 
could only work if people are staying in one place and you have systems of mass production and you're able to store grain in very large amounts and you see a narrowing of diets. But it isn't necessarily with agriculture that you see the restriction of women's rights because you have plant and animal domestication and kind of mixed economies with people hunter-gathering at some times of the year, practicing agriculture at other times of the year or both for a really long time before you see any signs of gender depression in the uh, record. What signs of gender depression are you talking about in those particular states? So suddenly you see this, this shift from sort of egalitarian Neolithic settlements into these, now, these states where things become more organized and you have, you, you have sort of roles. What sort of evidence do you have for that? Like, what is there archaeological writings or? Yeah, we have quite what, a lot. What is there? We have quite a lot because we have written evidence, of course, from Mesopotamia and Assyria. We have all these tablets. And what's interesting is, you know, when I was in the museums in Anatolia, you can see all these tiny little cuneiform tablets with all the tiny little markings on them. And many of them, I can't read cuneiform, but as experts will tell you. Me neither. So, <laughs> no. hey. Great. Yeah, that's I've tried. Challenge. <laughs> Next challenge <laughs> is that many of them are lists. You know, they're cataloging people and goods. And that really is the cornerstone of bureaucracy, administration, government. How many people do we have? What resources do we have? How do we administer those resources? And that is really where you start to get a kind of state interest in who is a woman, who is a man. Right. Before that, you know, people would have done anything because you would have to be able to do everything. You can't live a subsistence life unless everybody is doing everything, including children. But that division of labor rests on being able to categorize people and tell them this is your job, this is your function. And also within that, then you start to get an awareness of gender on the part of the state, an interest in, you know, who is male and who is female and slow rules around that. That interest in gender is about population, like maintaining the population. So, so it's like, crikey, we've got to, we need more people, right? You people do the breeding and then you people do the killing yeah. and protecting. <laughs> yeah, essentially, kind of <laughs> killing and capturing. So they're also bringing in more people. Yeah. Okay. And then that was it. That was, so that was on a Wednesday that happened. And then we <laughs> haven't looked back and then it's just sort of carried on. Well, it happened over thousands of years. So there were women rulers in those early states. If of you course. look at the Sumerian king list, there are women in that list. So it's not as though the elites were just men from the beginning. Well, when we talk about the patriarchy, we, we have this sort of pejorative way of talking about it. We see it as, as a negative thing. Is it sort of back then in the early days of the patriarchy? Is it, was it sort of back then a kind of good thing? Like, as okay, we need it in order to, for civilization to kind of function. It wasn't like we don't like women or we don't think women are the same as, there wasn't, it wasn't like that, was it? Like you say, there were female leaders. And yeah, there, and- there have always been female leaders. There have always been female military leaders, female warriors, female hunters right throughout history. Um, but what the patriarchal state does is narrow gender roles. It tells people that you can't live any way you want to. You have to live in this way. It kind of codifies the family structure, how the family must behave, the loyalty to the state. So there's almost a transference of love and loyalty from within the family to those in power. And this is, I think, where we get the kernel of this idea of honor or of that you are serving as an individual, not just the interests of yourself and your family, but also the interests of the state. And we see that even now, you know, any country in the world 
when birth rates start to fall, they get nervous. Governments start to bring in incentives for people to have more children. Even in Britain, you know, there were all these tax breaks and, you know, incentives for families, the more children that you have. These are ideas that we still live with, but they shaped our modern day ideas about masculinity and femininity. Take us from the, those sort of early, how it's sort of evolved to where we are now. So from those early days, you painted this lovely picture of early settlements where population and there were kind of reasons why it was set up to be like this. But then it's kind of, as you say, morphed into different roles. So as civilizations changed, why didn't this system change? Why did it kind of stay as, this, as the patriarchy? Well, there was a lot of negotiation even then. So even when you have more and more patriarchal control, more gendered norms, um, even then there are people negotiating, for example, their rights in marriage. So there is an Assyrian tablet that I sometimes show people in my lectures, which shows a man and woman agreeing to equal rights of divorce, something that women in later modern societies wouldn't have. So even back then, there was this kind of legal negotiation happening, these conversations, resistance, always. And that is right there all the way through, even in the most misogynistic parts of antiquity, you see it. And it's, it's patchy depending on where you are in the world. So obviously there are still very many matrilineal and matrilocal societies while this is going on. There are different avenues for women to exercise power and agency, which slowly disappear much later on. The kind of idea that women are the property of men or, you know, the laws that you see in Europe much, much later, centuries later, around a woman doesn't have the right to her own earnings, that her labor belongs to her husband. All of that actually comes much, much later. So this is like a grift, you know, this, this is what I argue is it's not something that someone wrote down. It's not like Marx and Engels wrote down and invented this different society and how it might work. Like, for example, like the idea of like taking on your husband's name, it always seems such a crazy thing. Like, where did that come from? Well, what you see is that different forms of oppression borrow from others. Um, so that particular tradition, this idea that the woman is a man's property and that she should adopt his name because that denotes that she is his property actually is borrowed from captive taking and slavery. So this is what would happen. The sociologist Orlando Patterson has written really beautifully, all societies in the world everywhere have practiced captive taking and slavery. Uh, and what would really? generally happen is that, and right throughout time, you know, ancient societies, it was very common for there to be high numbers of slaves within those early states. And what would happen is that Generally, I mean, it varies depending on where you are, but a, a slave or a captive would be taken into your home and they would be stripped of their identity. And so there are some slave societies in which they are then given the name of the master of the household. And that is essentially where that idea comes from, that as a wife, you should change your name because you are now assuming his identity. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This idea of oppression, if you like, of, of, and you say, you know, throughout civilizations, there are these forms of oppression. Where, where, is it a natural thing for the human species to oppress other bits of the human species and other people? And, and this is where we get th- this from. You know, I, I think about that a lot. And I think it's a really difficult question to answer, because at the same time as you do see people everywhere, men and women, care about status and power. We all do. And we only have to look at social media to know how much everyone cares oh, about God. Honest, honestly, seriously, it drives me around the bend. I, I mean, I, I use Twitter, but it's, it's, it's horrific. Does it not drive you around the bend? It's horrific. Well, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. Oh, yeah. So I feel You're like really I'm checked out of that, that world. It is universal. People do care about influence, about having status. That That is an important part of who we are. And whether it's biological or not, yeah, possibly it is. But at the same time, there are also other aspects of us that care about other people. The fact that we can have empathy for people we aren't even related to, to people on other, the other side of the world, that we can care about them, that we can cry for someone who is dying, who we have never met. And that is also part of what it means to be human. So I wouldn't want to assume that we are just one way. <laughs> No, 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 but it, it is that it does seem to. I mean, I don't know, but it does seem to be we we are just so hyper connected and hyper social creatures, and we just and that idea of forethought, the, the fact that as you say, empathy. I can empathise with you because you know I know that you're a human and you've got a brain a bit like mine, so I'm projecting my own things on you. And how does that result of being hyper social species? Things like oppression are naturally going to occur, as well as empathy. I'm saying these things. I have no idea because I'm not, <laughs> that would kind of make sense to my yeah, thick brain. Yeah. And dehumanization, I think, is learned. What you grow up with, what is yes, normalized around you, then you start to think, okay, it's okay to behave like that around other people. You know, just going back to slavery and captive taking, the idea that you can have someone in your household whose work, whose labor that you extract for free, who is completely degraded. The fact that that could be normalized then, I think, inspires so much of other forms of oppression later. Well, it's that thing. You, you want to be part of the tribe. And you mentioned social media, and you just see these tribal alliances going on on Twitter. I'm part of this tribe. I'm part of this tribe. And, and you see all this fighting. And if you're just brought up to believe a particular thing, or well, this is the way things are, it's quite hard to see any different. You need that shock from the anesthetic of the familiar to kind of wake you up and go, Actually, this is kind of crazy. Well, in a sense, you know, the modern day language of universal human rights, of equality, gives that to people. And it didn't exist for most of history. For most of history, nobody would have imagined that everybody was equal. There were always these kind of very rigid hierarchies between the free and the slave, between the citizen and the non-citizen, between men and women, between the outsider, the insider, foreign native, all of that. And 
you know, I think it's beautiful that humans have been able to develop a way of thinking about ourselves that is truly universal, that allows us to have empathy with absolutely anyone and to reimagine the way that we think about human worth and value. And you're right, and we live in a perfect society now where no one argues <laughs> because it's, it's totally egalitarian and, and happy <laughs> and loving. And but we know that that's great. what we want. That's the thing. Well, the thing yeah. is everyone wants it, but then, of course, no one agrees on it. <laughs> <laughs> no one agrees on, like... <laughs> And sort of, how'd you get it? I'm not sure that everybody wants it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, crikey, you look at, we're all thinking about Russia at the moment. I mean, thinking about Putin, for example, someone like Vladimir Putin, who's kind of a real conservative, you know, these are, you know, very rigid gender roles. You think the West is now completely decadent because we have all these, all these new fangled ideas. So I suppose there is a backlash to it. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if you remember, I remember watching the two Ronnies. Like in like the 1970s, and they used to have a skit on the two Ronnies called "The Worm That Turned," and it was a basically a kind of gender reversal series whereby all the men suddenly wore dresses and da 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 da, and were housewives and cooking and everything else, and all the women. It, it was it was that, and it was that kind of ha ha ha. Wouldn't that be funny if? Because it just seemed such an absurd idea, but it was just built on these kind of ridiculous gender stereotypes to begin with. I remember watching it and going, that'll never happen. <laughs> Europe in particular is very rooted in this fixed gender binary, yeah. depending on where you are in the world. There are actually very different ways of imagining gender. I mean, just to take, so for example, when I moved to the US, I live in New York. There are many indigenous societies in the US that have a much more expansive way of thinking about gender. Uh, the Haudenosaunee, so it's an indigenous community in upstate New York, they are matrilineal. Uh, women have traditionally run agriculture. They have incredible authority. Clan mothers who still run government at the local level among the Haudenosaunee predate the founding fathers of the US by hundreds of years. When European settler colonialists first encountered them, they were shocked. They couldn't imagine that anybody else in the world wouldn't live the way that they did with you know, the father at the head of the family, a nuclear family, all of this it completely overturned the, the way that they imagine the world. So we have to remember that these are also modern societies. They're not, you know, remnants of some long forgotten past that is now transitioning into patriarchy. These are still modern societies. They have just designed things a different way. They invented a different way of existing. You know, here we are in New York and London. What are your kind of feelings about it now? Like, where are we? Is it, is it gone? I mean, is it still there to be smashed like what's the you've established it as an invention as, as a kind of in a way a sort of arbitrary thing what is the future do you think we struggle to completely smash this because smash is the is, word we always have to yeah, use we smash do. and patriarchy yeah. go together sure i don't I've got know a t-shirt with smash and patriarchy written on it and the problem is is that these are ideas and ideologies that have woven their way into so many other parts of our lives. Just as class has, just as racism has, it is embedded within our religious beliefs, within our customs. You know, the custom of taking your husband's name. Many women will not imagine that to be patriarchal or aggressive. They will just do it and not think about it. But that doesn't mean it's not. But don't people take it because they kind of like it? Isn't there that argument? It's but like, why? oh, it's sort of... A well, that because, I don't know, they're more conservative and they sort of see that idea as a rather sort of quaint thing. Yeah. 
Well, there, that's, there you go. That's part of the reason is that we cling to tradition. It makes us feel comfortable. It gives us a sense yes. of belonging yeah. and identity. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of the reason that things don't change perhaps as quickly as they might, because ditching all of patriarchal ideas would also mean relinquishing things that we hold dear. That's really interesting. And especially things like religious beliefs, because I guess when you read the Bible, not that it's I read the Bible great. very often. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It needs some editing. If, if it, you know. No, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. You know, a, a lot of people will say to me, well, surely patriarchy started with religion because the re religion, you know, the big mainstream religion seems so misogynistic, but they weren't that seen that way at the beginning in ancient Rome when this cult emerged of Christianity, one cult of many, in a society in which religion, religious cults actually offered a lot of agency to women. It offered them the chance to be priestesses, to have a lot of authority, to behave in ways that they couldn't normally in everyday society. Christianity preached something that people genuinely hadn't heard before, which was, you are all equal. And that's why people flocked to it. You know, everybody from the lower socioeconomic classes, women, for them, it offered them something new, something revolutionary. Same with Islam later on. Well, the reason it was so popular is because it promised something that nobody had seen before. But what you see over time is that the establishments of religion become co-opted into the aims of the state, the patriarchal state, and then their goals and the things that they're preaching then start to mirror what the patriarchal state is asking for. So you get, for example, the Vatican today is so obsessed with gender roles and the family and sex outside marriage and all of this. Why? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a Catholic, but it's like, what's <laughs> the deal? I thought they were all kind of trying to be really hyper-progressive now. And well, not hyper-progressive. I think they're making progress. But, you know, just recently the Pope was complaining in Italy that people are keeping dogs instead of having children. And he was saying, you should be having kids instead hey, of having dogs. don't dogs. I love dogs. <laughs> well, you should Honestly. take that up with a Pope. I've got children as well, but <laughs> given the choice. <laughs> but where does that come from? You know, why does he care? Why does the Vatican care about how many children people are having? Because of what I said earlier, because of the state and its need around population. Yeah, and I guess of history and tradition and, you know, we, we, you, know you get your values from, you know, people you trust, your parents, you know, your elders, whatever, and, and then you sort of, pass those on i don't know it's contagious perhaps <laughs> absolutely and so in the end after we've lived with this for a very long time we divorce the origins of it that we look at the vatican and we imagine that what they are telling us is what they believe to be divinely true and i'm sure that is the mm. case for them they imagine it to yeah. be divinely true but where do those ideas actually come from they come from somewhere else we don't remember where that place was we don't remember why it was that these texts were written in the way that they were. I think that's a really elegant way of putting it, actually. I hadn't really thought of it like that. This idea of we sort of be, because we're divorced from our, the origins, we take this assumption that it's always been like this and somehow kind of God-given in inverted commas. But actually, it's not. It was invented. When you're um, president or prime minister or whatever you want to be, what's the kind of end goal? Like, what would you like to see? Like, You've got all these institutions like the Catholic Church and does everyone have to just completely sort of change? And I don't know, I'm just trying to... Well, you know, I'm on the radical end of things. So I, I would love to see a world in which we are willing to question everything, in which we're... That's not radical. Everything is on is the table. Radical? Well, it is when you consider that not everyone is willing to do that. 
and for understandable reasons, because our cultures are intertwined with these things. Our, you know, our sense of identity is intertwined with these things. And I can totally understand why people would be reluctant to then give up huge parts of themselves in the name of equality. Truly equal society is one in which you don't just have gender equality, you have class equality, you have no one oppressed. Yeah, mm. that's my next, I mean, where is, I mean, class equality to me seems to be like the real dividing line of society, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in Britain, um, we don't talk about it very much, but it is. Same in America. This is why we have Donald Trump. It's like <laughs> these are, you know, well, these are symptoms of like deep class riven societies where yeah. people are not equal. Yeah, people feel absolutely. hard done by and people feel like they're being lectured at or, or whatever it is. It's kind of, there is a, these sort of, these sort of fractures of society seem very much, I don't know. It depends, it depends which kind of lens you look at it through. I mean, you can look at it through lens of race or gender or class, I suppose. And yeah, which is why I think it's important to look at all of the things at the same time. And a lot of my book is about looking at the ways in which, so for example, colonialism and racism and class and capitalism all feed from each other into patriarchal systems and, and the other way. And just a recognition that the further back you go, you can't extricate these things. They don't exist separately. They're not invented in discrete ways. They're all together, all at the same time, right from the beginning. This idea of like understanding where things begin, I think is really, really a good way of, of shaking people and from that sort of anesthetic, if you like, and going, look, it's start, actually having that kind of lineage rather than just kind of the mists of time and actually sort of clearing the mess and actually educating about it is, is good. Can I just ask, like, what changed in your mind? I mean, you've written about this a lot, gender politics a lot. Did anything change? Did anything make you kind of review what you think? You go, actually, you know what? I thought about this for a long time, but studying the history, I've actually kind of revised, for example, something. Absolutely. I mean, aspects of my own life, my own personal life, but also... So, for example, the abortion debate here in the US is often framed as a women's rights issue. And certainly from the outside, it's often framed as a women's rights issue. But if you look at any picture of anti-abortion debates in the press, you will see loads of women. There is an entire generation of young women here who call themselves the post-Roe generation, who have pushed to overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, by framing it as simply a women's rights issue, as though all women are on the same page when it comes to abortion, we forget how many women, young women included, are actually invested in the anti-abortion argument. And it's not because they're brainwashed. It's not because they don't know any better. They genuinely believe they have the moral right on their side. And we have to be able to understand that, the ways in which patriarchal systems assert themselves and live within us and where we draw those lines and where we imagine those lines to be. How can we better talk about this kind of stuff? In science, for example, you acquire your scientific knowledge from people you trust and whose values you share. That's just the way it is, which is why people are sort of anti-vax. And it's no good just sort of telling people's facts. And I wonder about all these difficult political things. How can we better talk about it? Because just, just telling people they're stupid or they're evil, or they're wrong, or they're bad. People don't like being told they're stupid, or they're idiots, or whatever, whatever it is. So how can we build better bridges somehow? We do, and I don't think we should think of it in a binary way, you know, that you're an anti-vaxxer and I 
will always have my vaccines. We have to understand people where they are, the reasons that they're making those choices. Anybody can fall into what you might call pseudoscience or conspiracy theories. Every single of one course. of us is susceptible yeah, to absolutely. that. Yeah, absolutely. Because they course. don't attract us with facts. They attract us by appealing to our ideas exactly. about yeah. our emotions or our fears about our children, our psychology, our fear about losing privacy or bodily autonomy. It's always, you know, something emotional that they're accessing. And so if we want to reach out to people, we have to access them there, not by bombarding them with facts that they already have, but by understanding what is it in you that makes you want to believe this rather than that. You know, conversations about gender and about race and about class are always difficult because they are booby traps. And you tap the booby trap or the twit wire and it's, you can get yourself into all kinds of trouble. So people, are, I think there's a fear of people sort of talking about it because of public discourse anyway. Understandably, yeah. And that's one reason that I'm not on Twitter or Facebook anymore. <laughs> I got a lot of abuse from white supremacists when my last book came out. But also, I just didn't find it useful. They're white supremacists. So like, did that bother you? Did you find yourself under attack or did you find yourself going... Well, they're just a bunch of idiots. Yeah, both. <laughs> they're a bunch of idiots and I did find myself under attack. But it didn't bother me so much because I knew, uh, to be honest, I felt bad for them because, you know, I've written a lot about white supremacy and the far right and where these ideas of scientific racism come from. And they come from a place of deep insecurity. If your only sense of pride and identity comes from your skin colour, I mean, how miserable does your life really have to be? for you to get to that point. That's what makes you feel good about, good about yourself. So I always, you know, remind myself in circumstances like that, that this comes from desperation. This comes from a deep kind of fear of a loss of power or a loss of influence that is invested in something that they have no control over. You know, when people feel they have no control, and I think about this when I think about science and the way that people think about science. If people don't feel part of the conversation, if people feel that science is somehow an authority, like this is the way things are. And it's that misunderstanding between knowledge and science. People don't really see the difference between the two. Then, of course, you're going to have a backlash. People are going to be like, well, no, don't tell me I'm an idiot. No, yeah, nobody wants to be told that, obviously. And scientists, you know, very respected scientists can sometimes have terrible ideas about the world and be deeply, deeply wrong about things. We know that. So it's not the case that either you're stupid or you're clever and that decides your position on everything in the world. It's a lot to do with your experiences, life experiences, your upbringing, your worldview, your political values, all of that shapes you. There is no one objective way that scientists think that is correct on everything. Each person is different. You know, I worry about the state of discourse, uh, public discourse, the way we talk about difficult things. And it is a big part of my work. So I run a group at the Royal Institution called Challenging Pseudoscience. I set that up in 2019. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And we're just like a kind of volunteer network of editors, journalists, scientists, social media experts, counter-extremism experts. We have quite a bit of funding from the Open Society Foundations and we fund projects looking at how to effectively combat pseudoscientific misinformation. And we've learned very clearly over time that this isn't a matter of fact-checking. Fact-checking matters, but it's not, you know, that's Correct. not really how you get to people. What you need to do is get them where they are. I, you're exactly, I mean, I've been fascinated as well by, by why people believe things that are patently ridiculous. 
And it, to me, I don't know, it does so much of it does come down to trust. Telling people they're conspiracy theorists, <laughs> again, like telling people they're idiots, no one likes to be called a conspiracy theorist. No, no one thinks they're a conspiracy no, theorist. absolutely. Yeah. Again, I was slightly off topic. This is a podcast about the patriarchy. <laughs> I went to a flat earth convention. I've talked about this a lot, actually, because oh, I wanted to okay. try and... It was really interesting, actually, because I, I wanted to understand, like, at what point do you start believing that the earth is flat when clearly it's not? And the interesting thing was talking to them. And I actually was there with a bunch of PhD astrophysicists from Imperial as a kind of exercise, was just how terrible the astrophysicists were explaining how the, why the Earth is round <laughs> and how good the flat Earthers were explaining their cause. And by the end, I was like, oh, maybe there's something into this. But again, it's, just, it's, that, it's that authority thing. They just see mainstream science or mainstream media, all these Trumpisms that have crept slowly into the vocabulary, the elites, all these Trumpian words, they just see it as that. Yeah, yeah. There's this, that kind of natural you know, backlash towards that. Yeah, and it becomes a choice after a while that you have all the evidence. It's not as though, you know, we've done a lot of work in our group around vaccine hesitancy, and it's absolutely not the case that vaccine-hesitant people or anti-vaxxers do not have access to the information. They do, and in fact, they are often very well-informed. They've read everything. They've just chosen a certain set of evidence over others. But if you don't trust the institutions... It's all very well if Chris Whitty is standing in front of the Downing Street lectern telling us facts about the pandemic. But if you fundamentally think politics is broken, or if you fundamentally think that scientists are a bunch of liberal, elite people that you're not part of, whatever they say is just going to be tainted with that. I don't mean party politics. What I mean is the whole edifice. The whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing. But that's a slide, you know, it's a thin end of a wedge that you can slide into conspiracy-style thinking, starting off being a little bit sceptical and then you end up going down that rabbit hole. And the so- and social media doesn't help, of course. It, you know, Famously, it's, YouTube had these the algorithms worst. that drove people into rabbit holes. It's much easier for this to happen than you might imagine. Interesting things. Let's finish going back to the subjects, which is about the patriarchy. So all these things we've talked about, actually things like algorithms and social media and, and, and the way we consume information. And you know, When you wrote the book or when you finished, when you wrote the last chapter and, and sent it off to the publishers, like, what's the reaction you want? What does that look like? I want to feel that I've filled that gap at least part of the way, You know, that big gaping question about how did patriarchy begin, that origin story. And I know I haven't filled it completely, and I don't even know if it is possible to do that. But at least we have access to some of those answers now. That has been really useful to me. I hope it's useful for readers. And I hope also that history gives people optimism, that they don't feel resigned to things the way they are, that they can feel that we can design societies another way. We can invent something completely different. There is no natural reason why we have to have such unequal communities and states. So my hope is that the book gives people that sense that anything is possible. Angela, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's (laughs) been fun and and really interesting. And I I enjoy these sort of little tangents, which are (laughs) kind of connected, but important, I think. Lovely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was really fascinating. Thank you very, very much, Angela, for joining us. Thank you for your company. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, then you know what to do. Press all the buttons and 
help all the algorithms do their algorithmic things and of course tell all your friends about the podcast series and listen to all the other episodes that we've done also as i say at the end of every show if you've got a suggestion for a topic we should cover email us at patented at historyhit.com and we will put your idea onto our increasingly large list but it will go on the list fear not thank you very much for your company i will see you next time While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.